What did you have for breakfast this morning? Let's see. I had a couple of eggs, sunny side up, and a piece of toast. Mm, what kind of toast? Mm, so I'm in Portugal right now, and so all the baked goods are lovely. So just this really, it's like hard and crusty on the outside, really soft and buttery on the inside. Just some really standard, freshly baked white bread. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit through conversations with extraordinary people. We talk about all aspects of life here, imposter syndrome, breaking free from the script, living with intention, boundaries with family, what it means to be vulnerable, and the fact that we're all really just making this up as we go along. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Angie Cole. She's a daughter, sister, coach, and creator of Untaming the Wild, where, and I heard you put it this way once, you help women create work that keeps them lit up and well-paid. And I really liked the way you phrased that, so I had to use that as your introduction. Your Instagram bio, though, says, the rules were never meant for us, which I sort of want to get that on my wall. What does that phrase mean to you? Mm. So... Um, on my website, I've actually expanded that description to humans. I help humans create work that keeps us lit up and well-paid. Um, because really the folks, women are near and dear to my heart, but really my work is for folks who are at the margins, who have always been told you have to do it this way or you don't fit. You have to do it this way or it's not going to work. You're not going to work. You're not going to be successful. And it, over the last seven years of doing this work full time in a very nerdy, intense way, because I'm nerdy and intense, I've, I've really come to appreciate that that includes almost all of us. That still includes straight white guys because straight white guys are still being told you have to do it this way or it's not going to work. And so, you know, even the straight white guys in my life who I, who I love dearly feel marginalized because they don't, they don't fit. They don't do it that way. So the rules were never meant for us. I, I, you know, I just figured out at a really early age that so many of the rules were just made up. They were pretend these adults, these grownups, you know, had these, rules for how things had to go. And I had some pretty formative moments where I realized they don't know what they're talking about and that's not real. And the world doesn't fall apart if you don't do it that way. So rules are never meant for us. Those I work with rebels and renegades and people who are either already living at those edges or they have been following the rules and they figured out that they're not working for them. I love that the, the rules were never meant for us suggests that there are rules and maybe I don't or we don't have to follow them. But I love that you took it a step further and explored like, well, maybe the rules are just a mirage to begin with. Like they don't even exist in the way we think they do. Because yeah. I often think about this, like maybe it's a little existential, but 
we're in like 2021, we're a full blown society on this planet earth, but like you go back like tens of hundreds of millions of thousands of years and whatnot. And like, there were just like humanoids like roaming around the planet and like, there were no laws or rules or like, I guess society, <laughs> but like, it's just interesting to think about. Cause like everything that exists today is completely made up by our fellow humans for various reasons. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about like, do we need, you know, <laughs> this is getting a weird direction, but like, you know, laws, I suppose, like what laws do we need to follow? But like, what conventions and societal norms mm-hmm. actually do we need to follow? You mentioned that at an early age and you had some pivotal moments, like what, where did you start to, to feel the rules were never meant for us? And maybe the rules are actually not real. You know, I, well, I think part of that was from an early age To a certain degree, I was incapable of following the rules. So I identify and have been on a journey with um, the label of attention deficit disorder. And only very recently have kind of claimed that and really gone into understanding all of it. But it's been part of my life forever. So from a very early age, the rules that the entire, you know, the whole world was created to uphold when you go to school, what you do there, when you go to work, what you do there, how you behave, what it means to be a good student, air quotes, what it means to be a good employee. I sucked at, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't sit in class and sit still and be quiet. (laughs) Every report card I ever had as a young person (laughs) I always got the comment talks too much. There was a little box that they checked and it was talks too much <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't learn in a passive quiet. I needed to talk about it. I needed to ask questions to the person next to me. I needed to talk to the teacher. I had no impulse control. So raising my hand quietly and waiting to be called on did not work for me. And not because I didn't want it to, I wanted to follow the rules because I saw so clearly as we all do that that's, that's what you do. We know what the norms are. So I, I really see now actually what a gift that was that I functionally couldn't follow them. I had to create another worldview. I had to come up with another answer because I knew I wasn't bad. I knew I wasn't a crappy person. I knew I wasn't not doing those things because I didn't want to. So I had to come up with a new story and, and it it just started to creep in the question of, well, why is it that way? Why, why do we have to answer, you know, with our hand up and why do we have to sit here in these rows day after day, hour after hour? Um, I also, it's so funny that this memory is coming up, but, but I think it is very clearly connected to the power shift of, as kids, we think the adults know it all, see it all, have all Absolutely. the answers, right? Yeah. So I grew up, my mom, um, is a, is a healthcare professional and I've grown up inside of hospitals and doctor's offices my whole life, like literally caught the bus at the, at the hospital and brought the school bus brought us back to the hospital in the evening. This would never happen today, by the way. My childhood <laughs> would never be true. 
but we were in a small town, small town hospital. My mom was like the director of all the nursing. Like she was the boss. So it was fine that her kids were there. I was doing my homework behind the nurse's station in the emergency room of the hospital, like sitting back there with my little trapper keeper and my, you know, (laughs) and this guy came in and all the nurses are doing their thing. And he comes up to the counter and he leans over the counter. And I noticed that he had a, a tape recorder in his pocket and like was, had hit the record, you know, like those little voice memo recorders. Oh yeah. And I saw him do it. And I saw him try to record this conversation with the nurses and I on purpose interrupted because I saw what he's trying to do and I knew he was being shady. And anyway, long story short, but I just really got my power in that moment that I was a kid, but I had seen something that nobody else saw. Mm. I was a kid and I had agency and authority and I had brought new information to this very high, um, authoritarian, you know, it's a hospital. It's very serious. (laughs) And this guy doing this very serious, kind of scary to me as a kid thing. So it was, it was just another one of those moments of, Oh, I'm not just a passive little person with no power who just has to listen and not have thoughts and contributions about what's happening. So it's a funny memory that I'm connecting that with all of this, but I can see now how that it just yeah. elevated my sense of agency. Yeah, you had that's a great story, I think that or a great memory that connects that because you I, I see it as you sort of like felt the ability to have an impact, like to actually affect the situation that maybe you hadn't. And like you said, so many of us as kids don't realize that. For a long time, um, depending on our our upbringing, you know, maybe yeah. we weren't encouraged to affect the situation. Yeah, and I think when when you, it doesn't take many of those moments. I see this with my clients all the time. Once you kind of see that there's a little bit of a crack in the armor or a crack in the story, it doesn't take many of those to start to think. Well, if I was wrong about that, what else am I wrong about? If I, if I thought that rule had to be followed, yeah, children are seen and not heard. I grew up in the South, like to be a young girl in the South meant you had no voice. Nobody wanted to hear what you had to say. You had to be asked your opinion. Um, and so to see those little cracks just, and maybe also just cause my nature was always, I was always just very curious in general. Um, once you kind of see that there's a little bit of bullshit, it's easy to just go, well, what else? What else does not add up here? Um, I had a crumbling down. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. I think about, I I listen to so many interviews with comedians. I am obsessed with creative people. Mm. And like, you look at like, you know, a a name brand like Conan O'Brien, but uh, you hear it from every level comedian the moment when they were a kid, when they first made people laugh, like whether it was in school or at a family dinner, and all of a sudden they realized 
that they were able to cause that reaction from that person. I, I think it was a similar reaction they had of like, it brought them out of that. Like, wait a second. Like, yeah, I was able to do that. And like, that's not something that I expected to happen. It broke, so, you know, it broke that barrier. Yeah. yeah. So your, your story, your memory about the hospital reminds me of that, that it's like, wait a yeah. second, I was able to break that down. And you, you, I guess I was, you didn't even try, but you, you, you had the intention to say something like you stepped up and said, I'm going to try to, to see what happens here if I say something. Yeah, I just, I knew that I was seeing something that no one else was seeing. And I think that was that weird, like, oh, adults aren't, these guys aren't even paying attention. This, it was so obvious to me. I saw it immediately. I think because my dad had one of those when I was a kid, like for his work or whatever. Um, I saw it, I knew what it was. I saw what was happening. The other five adults standing around had no idea. It was just, yeah, this really kind of magical moment of, I've I've got information that nobody else has. It's kind of empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So you're going, you're hanging out at the hospital a lot because mom's working there. Did that feel, you know, coming back from school to the hospital and stuff, uh, did that feel like just normal? Like you're like, this is how kids this is my life. This is what I expect most people's life is like. Or did you have a sense of like, maybe most of my friends, you know, are at home having dinner with the family after school and I'm at the hospital. Yeah, yeah I definitely had a sense it was different. I, I had a sense it was different and it didn't feel not normal because it was my life. So that was normal yeah. for my yeah. life. Um, but kind of in a similar vein, I, um, I knew... I did kind of always have a sense that I was getting this insider view into this world that felt very secretive, I think, to a lot of people, like the world of doctors. They're very, you know, again, very serious, this very high degree of authority and importance. And, but again, I remember overhearing, like eavesdropping on conversations between doctors and my mom as they were discussing cases or whatever. Again, never happening in today's <laughs> world. But, um, and just realizing that they were guessing. I remember mm. asking my mom and being like, he's just guessing. He doesn't really know what's wrong with this person. Are you guys, and just again, being like, mind blown that this person that is supposed to be so powerful and so important doesn't really know. And I, her answer was basically, yeah, we have this education, we have this experience, but in the end, it's an educated guess. Same thing. I was like, oh, the, so then I'm not going to listen with the same kind of unquestioning. I think that's what it was. He's giving his opinion based on his experience, his or her as a doctor, but I get to still ask questions about it if that doesn't yeah. make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, as a kid, that being in that environment was a pretty powerful insight into this stuff that I think would have felt impenetrable otherwise. Yeah. And that's early on. This reminds me of what I call this phenomenon I recently... So, uh, when I became a parent is when I realized that parents are just making it up as they go along. Like I thought my parents, (laughs) similar to what you thought about adults and doctors, like they knew everything, right? And then I become a parent and it becomes quickly clear (laughs) that no, parents are just 
like learning as they go and making this shit up. And it's not, like it sounds like as a kid, you realized adults and humans in general, we're just making this up as we go along. Yeah. It's, it sounds like that was a pretty, I mean, that must've, I'm getting a sense. That's where maybe you kind of like your path shifted and you were like, Oh wow. Wait a second. The world I see in front of me, there's cracks in it. Right. And the, and the assumptions that I see a lot of other people making, I'm not willing to just hold as true that everything is up for question. God bless my parents <laughs> and my team. Like I, I was just willing to question everything to, to say, well, is, are you sure? How do we know that that's true? Does it have to be that way? Is there another option? What could we do instead? <laughs> that has guided, that's guided my whole life. I think in combination with, again, my experience of being incapable of following so many of the structures in place that were celebrated and rewarded, if I couldn't do it that way, despite my sincerest desire, what else, what else could be true? So I think the combination of those two things just led me to be like, all right, I really can do this any way I want to. What a feeling. Like, that's so liberating. It is. It's liberating and, well, two things. There's was certainly a, a chapter of my life where I kind of gave that up. <laughs> Cause I thought, all right, it's time. I'm like a grown up now. So it's time <laughs> to, you know, do the things you're supposed to do. Uh, spoiler alert. That didn't work out so well for me. I was going to um, say, it's like Peter Pan where you, you all of a mm-hmm. sudden decide that I'm done being Peter Pan and I want to be grown up now. Yep. So that didn't work out for me, which is a story we can get into. Um, but it also, especially as I started my business, it's also a little scary because knowing that the templates and the rules and the, you know, the six step plan to whatever six figures was not going to work for me means I have to come up with a plan. Mm. And those, you know, the six step plan is so seductive because it, it's the promise of certainty. It's the promise of just do this and it's all going to work out. Um, Knowing early on that that was bullshit, it's not to say that I didn't try to be seduced by those things, but, um, so yeah, it's super empowering and liberating and with freedom comes responsibility. And so the, the freedom came with, all right, well, if I'm not going to live my life in service to those rules, what are my rules? I better be clear on my guiding principles and my truths and the things that I want to have shape my life. Um, otherwise it's either a free for all or other people's agenda is going to creep in. That's interesting. Cause I am thinking, well, you were sort of trying to tame yourself, like trying to reel yourself in, but your sort of, you know, theme here is untaming the wild and helping people sort of uh, almost, I guess, break free. Um, that seems in contrast to each other. Like you, you were in a moment of maybe, was it too much chaos maybe? And you felt like you had to reel it in a little bit, like you weren't going to get all buttoned up and completely tamed, but maybe you just had to reel it in a little. 
So I think the, the answer to that question is kind of the arc of my story, which, um, was that there, there really was a period of my life that did have too much chaos. It was, it was the free for all it was because I, I didn't have my own compass by which I was navigating and I wasn't doing it their way, but I didn't really know what my way was. So it was just kind of a, well, whatever, like, yeah, you know, whatever goes like wild West. And oddly enough, I was living in the West at the time. Um, so that period really did start to swing the pendulum in the other direction. And that's when I decided that Peter Pan, Peter Pan was too much trouble. Peter Pan was getting in trouble. Peter Pan was causing trouble. Peter Pan was hurting people. Um, and, and Peter Pan just, it didn't look like, it didn't look great for Peter Pan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it wasn't cute in, in my thirties. Like Peter Pan wasn't cute anymore. So I, I went, you know, in earnest to try to clean, clean myself up, clean my act up, which, which culminated in me having the quote unquote perfect life. I was in a very loyal, committed partnership with someone who was very reliable and, you know, trustworthy, so boring, but very reliable. Um, and I, and we had the house and we had the couch and the hot tub and we, you know, we had the stuff and I was miserable. I was so bored and so, yeah, just uninspired. And in order to fit that life, I had to give me up. And so I kind of came to this crux of talking with a mentor over the course of a couple of weeks and realizing that I had systematically been shutting down parts of me to just get smaller. If I can just get small enough, if I can just, I could just be happy with this. If I could just do whatever it takes to be happy with the house and the partner and the life you're supposed to want, then I could be happy. Um, but it meant not being me. And it turns out after you spend enough time trying to not be you, there's, it's, it's pretty miserable. So there were a couple of pivotal conversations. One in particular, I can remember with this woman named Jennifer White, um, who's another coach where she was asking me, well, you know, cause I was wanting to travel and do these things. And, and she was, you know, basically exploring, well, why aren't you doing those things? And it kept coming back to being irresponsible. It felt irresponsible to let go of this relationship that anybody would be happy to have, you know, uh, it felt irresponsible to want to leave my house behind and the couch and the hot tub, <laughs> the couch and the hot tub were a really big deal to me. Um, I, to yeah, leave, you, leave it all. <laughs> you said you had what we were all supposed to have the house, the couch and the hot tub. I did not know we were all supposed to have the hot tub. I missed that part. So I'm going <laughs> to alter my it's plan. <laughs> It's the cherry on top though. Okay. I mean, that was why the hot tub is like, we had all the basic things, but yeah. then we had the hot tub. So you, you and, achieved success plus a bonus round. Yes, exactly. Nobody leaves the bonus round. Nobody does. Oh, yeah. No, no. 
trading miserable for the bonus round is just what we're supposed to do. And you're supposed to be happy about it. But I, so, so that conversation in particular was, was a really big turning point in thinking about my work differently and thinking about my life differently that I was trying to be responsible to whom, to the rules, Mm -hmm. to the shoulds, to the supposed tos, but I was being irresponsible to me. I was being irresponsible to, you know, by, by not following my gut, my instinct, my joy, my, my bliss, um, the things that light me up. I, that's really the part I couldn't live with anymore. So yeah, that's where the untaming, the re untaming, I suppose, uh, really, really came back into my life. I knew I had to figure out how to get back to that person, that the core of who I knew myself to be. Which is a, I think a daunting feeling, but a feeling I know I've felt that way and probably to some extent still do. How do you, or how did you in that scenario, how did you start to figure that out? Like, how did you, I think it's oftentimes we start to think about, well, this is not what I want. This doesn't Mm -hmm. feel right. But then, you know, that bridge to like, well, this is what I want. And this is what feels right. Isn't always a very smooth, clear bridge, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So it started with saying no to what I didn't want. And, and that is a pattern um, that I see very clearly now, again, both in my life when I'm making big changes and in my work with clients when they're about to embark on something big and new. We just almost always have to leap first. <laughs> We almost always have to say no first and make the commitment to not that. Sadly, before we get (laughs) the security of the new thing. That's scary because then you're stuck in the middle or or, I mean, you're afraid of being stuck in the middle of, well, I said no and now I haven't crossed the bridge. I'm like hanging in midair here. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, um, I think it's part of how, our commitment is fortified and it's part of how that clarity and confidence is created. I still have a bone to pick with whatever design, uh, divine creator of the universe, whatever your, you know, spiritual framework is. Cause it certainly seems to be baked in to how this all works. Um, but I'm still not happy with that design. It seems like a really not nice thing to do, but, the, the leap almost always comes first. Um, or the exhale. We have to exhale before we can inhale. <laughs> we can't just wait for the new thing. So I said no first and I left. You know, that's often the time when we are able to muster the courage to do the hard thing is when the staying becomes scarier than the leaving. I knew that if I kept it the same. I knew where that was going to go. And that became scarier than the unknown of what trusting and following myself might lead to. I, I just got to the place where I was willing to take that chance because whatever was coming next 
was going to be better than this. And that was really tough when it was mediocrely benign, right? There was nothing bad happening. There was nothing wrong per se with my life. It just, it, it just wasn't me. So I said no first, and then I created as much space for myself as I could. And I spent a lot of time alone, a lot, because that's where I began to be able to hear myself, to be able to hear the yeses and the nos, to be able to hear what feels good and what I want. Um, so yeah, those were, those were the first steps, the commitment to know, and then creating the conditions to be able to hear, to hear myself. It's interesting how you say, like, I think you said mediocrely benign, which I love, but that like your life didn't, it wasn't necessarily wrong. There wasn't anything wrong about it, but like, I felt that way before too. But then when you step back and think about it, like, well, the fact that I feel this way, like there is something wrong according to my, my rules and my feelings. And it's, I feel like it's so easy for us to dismiss that or, or almost apologize and say like, I, I don't know why I feel this way. Cause my life is, I have the hot tub. Nothing's yeah, wrong. Exactly. But like, maybe you don't actually want to be in the bonus round and, and that's how you feel. And that's okay. Um, so I, I love that you brought that up that like, it's, you felt that way. I think that's another connection back to the rules, right? That the, and I, I use yeah. that word to just mean all the kind of shoulds that I was following all the rules. I had done all the things. You should have felt like there was nothing wrong. Yeah. Right. I should have been happy, which in some ways makes it that much harder to hear and trust the feelings of dis-ease because there were loud voices in my head shaming me for being dissatisfied right? Because compared to how bad it could be compared to what other people want compared to the magazines had a great couch, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) it looked, it all looked the way that a happy life is supposed to look, man, that is a, it's a really, it's a really cozy cage. It's a cozy trap to try to get yourself out of. So it, it really does take knowing your own, like you said, it, it doesn't matter if that would be a great life for someone else. And I'm sure it would be. Actually, I know it is because my partner immediately got into a new relationship, is now married with kids and like they're living the happy version of their life with my couch. And I'm sure it's great. <laughs> But I am living a life beyond my wildest imagination. I mean, I am living the life of my childhood dreams that I didn't even know until this might be an interesting story. I found this old letter. I went to my parents' house and I, I found this letter in, you know, the boxes of stuff that's (laughs) at your parents' house. Um, and it was this, it was this pen pal letter 
I had written to my little, did you have pen pals in school? There was like this hot minute in I think, yeah, public school. I remember I had one somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember who or where, but I remember I had a pen pal because I remember being proud of it. Yeah. There must have been some portion of public education curriculum where they're like, this year, everybody's getting pen pals. I had a, a pen pal who was a boy in Spain. And I'd written him this letter. Somehow it had never gotten sent, probably ADHD. <laughs> but I still had this letter. And there was this part where I was telling him that... So I grew up in a tiny little town, Rockwood, Tennessee. Nobody really leaves or goes anywhere. Um, I always knew it was not for me. But I remember writing to him that my family had just gone on this vacation to the Bahamas, which was so exotic for my little Tennessee self, right? It was this big deal. We didn't really do big vacations like that, but we'd gone to the Bahamas and I was writing to tell him about this. And it just broke my heart reading this letter because my little, I don't know, nine year old self said, I'm really afraid I'll never get out of here. I'm really afraid I'll never get to travel. I know. At that age. Oh, it was this heart longing that my little self had to see the world and be in the world and travel and go and just like, yeah, be out in the world. And that's my life. Now I'm out in the world all the time however I want to be. And that would not, the couch and the hot tub do not fit in the carry-on suitcase. I wonder, because you talked a little bit about how we, you, the shoulds coming Mm. from almost like comparing yourself to like what you should have. Do these shoulds and these rules, like, is it all based in comparison? Is that what we're all like, working from like we start with this idea that like well my life should be this way because people my age and this socioeconomic status like the comparisons i have next to me suggest or even direct that i should be this but when you start to like maybe break away the comparisons or hide them or put them in the rearview mirror all of a sudden it's like well I can do whatever I want because there's nothing to compare me to now. I, I just thought about that when you were describing that. Like, I wonder if the comparisons are sort of the where we start on the wrong foot in some of this. So I think the comparison is one mechanism of the bigger machine. I think comparison is the, the tool by which we are homogenized. It is very economically favorable to want to have what you have and what you have and what they have. It's very profitable to create a public body of folks who are constantly dissatisfied, constantly bombarded with images of the couch in the hot tub as the, as the gold standard, as the pinnacle, as the success, as the the, the gateway to happiness. If you have all these things, you're going to look like her. <laughs> look yeah. at her smile. Look how happy she is. Look how happy your kids are. Look how ha- healthy and vibrant they are. They have this hot tub that you could have too. So the comparison, I think, is just one, one piece of how that cycle gets perpetuated 
through imagery in the media, through the curation of what we see and the stories we're told. Um, yeah, because it's, it is highly profitable. It is not highly profit. I'm not, I am not a highly profitable contributor (laughs) to that machine. I own three shirts right now and they all have holes in them because I can't get stuff shipped. I've already got three packages somewhere lost in the world. So I stopped trying. (laughs) Um, but I am happy and satisfied and complete because I have made my own choices about what I have and don't have. So when, if I notice comparison now, which I it still happens because the design of that machine is, has been built by the most brilliant minds of our time, right? The psychology, the the manipulation behind all that is real and it is wired right into our, you know, most basic instincts. So I still get the, the nudges of comparison sometimes, but now I can stop and ask, well, do, what is that about? Do I really want that thing? Or do I think I should want that thing? Do I really want to have that experience or do do I believe I should be the person who has that experience? Um, yeah. So I I do think comparison is a, is a huge part of what perpetuates, perpetuates that. Yeah. I like that you describe it as a mechanism of something bigger because hearing you describe that puts it in context. I would agree with that, that it's, it's not necessarily the problem. It's part of the problem, but there's bigger forces at play, I think. For sure. And it's, um, I think one of the most forgiving parts of this journey for me has been recognizing that I didn't create all that, right? I didn't, I, it's not cause I'm broken or bad or sick or wrong that I sometimes feel jealous when I see someone else doing something that I want to do. I didn't, I didn't make that. <laughs> We're swimming in a soup of constantly being bombarded and messaged and curated to about that thing. Um, that was just, a, that's been a really healing part of this to just go, Oh, right. That I've inherited that it's been implanted in me, but it's not my fault. I wasn't the origin of it. It's up to me to do something about it. If I want to, I'm the only one who can kind of <laughs> untangle it, but I didn't do that because I think we do that to ourselves. Where yeah. We're going to go, oh, I need to fix this thing or I need to change this thing or I wish this thing wasn't true about me. Then we hit ourselves with, you know, in, in Buddhist philosophy, the second arrow, like we have the bad feeling about the thing that's happening. And then we have the second arrow where we feel bad about the bad <laughs> thing. Um, so then we can just be really mean to ourselves about, well, why is it this way? I shouldn't care about what other people think right in this world of like light and enlightenment and personal development and spiritual beautifulness. Um, I shouldn't be jealous. I shouldn't care about what that person's doing. And that just adds to the, yeah, to the muck. The muck. I like that. (laughs) 
that letter you found to yourself is so heartbreaking. But I wonder, or I'm curious, you travel a ton. I mean, you're kind of a nomad as you describe it, like you're sort of living wherever and everywhere, uh, which I think has got to be a fantastic experience. Do you think that that comes from that nine-year-old who was afraid she would never get out of small-town Tennessee? I don't think it comes from her fear. I think it comes from her desire. Oh, I love that. I think she just wanted it. Even then, she wanted it. She, you know, my parents, for all their for all their foibles, one of the most important things they gave me as a little girl in this tiny town was always reminding my sister and I that the the world was a big place, that this was not all there was and really encouraging us to explore that and be curious about it. Um, even though they weren't, you know, again, we weren't taking European vacations. I didn't go to Europe until four years ago. Um, but they just planted that view that the world is big and you, and you can be in it. So, yeah, I think it came from her desire. She, she was curious and felt, felt bigger than the place she was in. I love how you phrase that, that it was the desire, not the fear. What a beautiful way of looking at it, that there was a it wasn't something that came out of negativity. It's something that came out of positivity. Yeah, for sure. Our, you know, our fear can be a helpful motivator in moderation. Sure. Fear of, I don't know, and ending up like my dad led me. My dad was a, a pretty classic hoarder. So fear of ending up like my dad, rest in peace, Ross, um, led me to get rid of a lot of my stuff. Cause I just like, I just, my fear of being like him was really motivating to question. Why are you keeping that? Why are you having like a panic attack about getting rid of that book? <laughs> but fear will is, is not a sustainable resource. It is exhausting to try to maintain that as fuel desire is renewable, sustainable, not exhausting. Um, always it's, it, yeah, it's renewable. You're always able to create more. I love that. Yeah. And they're closely connected, right? They're really just two sides of the same coin. So if you're feeling stuck, maybe the fear has helped, helped move you a little bit. But if you can tap into the desire, again, going back to, I knew what I didn't want. My fear of staying, you know, was part of what got me out the door, but it was really the desire, the craving for what else might be possible. That's really the, the force to tap into. Other than ensuring you didn't become a hoarder. What were some other ways your dad sort of uh, shaped who you are? Mm, uh, You know, it's been such a journey with my dad, but I'm so like he and I did so much work at the end, like in the last couple of years. I I mean, I guess I did a lot of, I did a lot of work on being okay with just who we were. 
So I just have this sweet nostalgia now. I'm so grateful for that. He made me tough. He made me tough. I would not be the scrappy, successful, determined entrepreneur that I am today if I'd had a different dad. If I'd had a dad who was just like, oh, honey, sweetie, everything you do is just so great and it's just perfect and it's fine if you don't, you know, you don't have to really, you know, do that if you don't want to. If I'd had that dad... And I'm not saying everybody who has that dad or that that's a bad dad to have. Sure. But again, I think somewhere in the creative intelligence of the universe, somebody knew that that's not the dad I needed. I needed the dad for whom nothing was ever good enough. Nothing. Nothing. If you got a B plus, it should have been an A. If you got an A, it should have been an A plus. If you got an A plus, then I'm sure you should be in more extracurricular activities. (laughs) Again, also the place that I learned that the rules were crap um, because there's just nothing was ever good enough. So he made me tough because pretty early on I decided that, oh, if if I'm never going to please him, then I don't have to worry about that. I just get to take that out of the equation altogether because mm. he's just going to be pissed no matter what. <laughs> cool. Well, then take that out of the metrics of success and I just please me. I'm going to please me. What do I want? What is good enough for me? Um, one year I got a A in Spanish and the next one I got an F because I thought something else was more interesting and I didn't care about Spanish. <laughs> so it was really, um, yeah, pretty freeing to take that parent a pleasing part out. Um, what else did my dad give me? My dad gave me belief in magic. My dad loved Christmas more than anybody. My dad, we played, if, if you have children listening right now, <laughs> don't let them hear this part. <laughs> we pretended that Santa Claus was real and coming to our house until I was in my thirties. Oh, we had ritual around Christmas because my dad loved it. He it was like the time of when he was just the twinkliest. So my dad really helped me like cultivated that sense of magic and wonder and play and spontaneity. And, um, yeah, he, when that's the dad he was, <laughs> that part was really magical. <laughs> when he And then when he was the other dad, then he made me tough. So I'm really grateful for all that. I was going to say, those are, I mean, helping you become a tough person, but also to sort of believe in, you know, the joy and, and the, the magic there. Those are two sides of, you know, different sides, but two really great qualities to, to glean from somebody. Yeah. Yep. It's been, it has been a journey to get to the place where I can see and recognize those (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Not something that came overnight. I imagine it didn't, but man, am I so grateful for it now? I'm so grateful that I get to carry that relationship with him in that way and just really see the, 
the gifts and not all the other baggage. Yeah. Aw. You, me- you mentioned earlier you're in Portugal now. And I, as I mentioned before, you're nomad traveling all around. Um, you know, we're in early 2021 here. COVID's been around almost a year now. And I feel like COVID highlighted... I feel like once, you know, everything locked down, everyone was hunkered at home, right? And a lot of people, due to the ability now to be remote working for a lot of people, they would go to their original home or maybe back with family for a period of time. And so this this idea of like home was highlighted. What does home mean to you if you're, you know, you've chosen nomadic lifestyle and, you know, maybe you don't have an actual four walls that you would homestead and go back to? Yeah. Have you been eavesdropping on me this week? Have I been <laughs> eavesdropping my, on you? <laughs> <clears throat> this is my third conversation uh, in podcast land about home and what it means to me. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. It's no, it's amazing. <laughs> I love it. No, I, um, I've learned to see those as breadcrumbs when I see things show up multiple times. Like, oh, this is something I need to be writing more about or thinking more about. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So, no, that's it's perfect. Home, uh, for me, is a place of unguardedness. Home, for me, is the place where I get to walk in and my shoulders drop and my belly relaxes. And any, especially this year, like I am not an anxious person. Anybody who knows me would tell you I'm just one of the chillest, most easygoing humans there is. But man, did I get. Uh, an intimate experience with high alert, anxious feelings this year, like just going to the grocery store, right? Came with some full body feelings I'd never had before. So home is a place where like the door, put the key in the door, you open the door, you come in the door and it closes behind you and just everything gets to relax a little bit more. Um, Home is also, as I've been thinking about this a lot this week, (laughs) it's, I I see that my home is an embodiment of my values. So the choices I've made about what I travel with, what come, like what makes the cut and what doesn't make the cut. Cause my home fits into, well, until the last couple months of carry on suitcase. I added a second suitcase partway through the year because there were some comforts I was not willing to live without during this stressful time. Sure. Um, But that's my home. So the choices, you know, as a nomad, we get this kind of hyper opportunity to shape the contents of our stuff in our home. So what makes the cut and doesn't, for for me has quickly revealed these are the things that matter to me. These are the the ways that I get, you know, more ease. Ease is definitely a, a core value of mine. I want things to feel as easy and simple and streamlined as possible. That shows up in the stuff I have. I also love luxury and I love feeling pampered. So I carry, you know, like a large bottle of lush facial toner. <laughs> Not an essential item. But it is for me. I love it. <laughs> Makes me so happy. It's worth the it's worth the the weight in my luggage. So 
Home, I think, is at its best. Home is the place where we get to embody and express our values by the things we choose to have around. The way you said uh, initially that home to you was unguarded, that I've never heard it phrased that way. And I'm going to absolutely remember that because that is exactly how I feel like. I think about how I feel in different people's homes and different places and home is just where you feel unguarded at your yourself. You're just, you're just you, you're just, there's no anxiety about anything around you and that's yeah. unguarded. I love that. Right. It's, it is just, you just get to be the most you without giving it a second thought, which is how I knew my house with the couch and the hot tub was not my home because I did not feel that way there. There's a lot of editing. There was a lot of, yeah, pretending happening. What a great place to be in, though, that you're able to to recognize that, right? Like, even though, I mean, you're obviously recognizing something negative that you need to fix or improve, but being able to recognize that is the first step, I think, to getting there. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm pretty... Um... I'm pretty darn proud of that version of Angie who made that tough choice and, um, yeah. And the path that's brought me here because right now I'm, I'm just really this year in particular, I'm in this place where I've gotten all the things that I want, not the things you're supposed to have, (laughs) but my business is beyond my wildest dreams. My flourishing. My clients are flourishing. I have this amazing relationship. Like I've got, I've got the money. I don't have the hot tub, but I can go, I can go be in the hot tub if I want to be. Sure. Right? I can have all those things that I want. And now I'm in this place of, well, what is that? What the hell do you do now? This is a new problem. I've never had this problem before. I know how to solve the uh, rent is due next week and you need to come up with $750. That problem I know how to solve. This is a new world of problems. Uh, one of which being it's super uncomfortable to talk about that. Actually, it's way easier to talk about stuff being hard. It is. I feel super uncomfortable talking about <laughs> things being awesome and successful and abundant and overflowing. This is a, this is my, my next new edge and the new, the new frontier that I get to figure out how to be in. Now, what do I want? (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I think a great place to be in, but you've, you've highlighted, it is interesting that we, it's okay to discuss the journey to being successful and the struggles to getting what you want. But then once you're there and able to just sit in the fruits of your labor and enjoy it, that's not okay to talk about. It's really not. Or, or if, you know, I can think of a few people kind of in the like online space or whatever who talk about that, but I don't like the way they talk about it. That like, I can see what that might look like and I can see the world where it's not okay to talk about, but I'm not quite sure what my version of that is going to be. Cause I don't want to talk about it as a, a better than kind of paradigm 
well, I've done this and I've invested in myself and I've done, you know, and if you want to be this, you have to invest in, it's a salesy kind of tactic that I hear. Like, look at my Mercedes and look at my fancy hot tub. (laughs) How many times have I said hot tub in this conversation? Um, So that's not going to be, that I know will not work for me. But I really don't see role models or examples for how to do that in celebration and in possibility. Because man, if I can... I have screwed it up every way you can possibly screw it up. I've not followed any of the rules. I'm not bragging about that. I'm just saying like, it's just real. So if I can do it, like truly anyone can pull this off. <laughs> so if anything, that's, you know, that's my voice in all of this is you can, you can do it all wrong. And if you have a few, a few things going for you, you can, you can pull this off. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think we all need to hear that. And I'm so happy for you that you are the Angie that you, you know, wanted to be and want to be and that you've created this life for yourself. Thank you so much for taking time to join me today. I mean, I'm so excited about our conversation and I can't wait to, yeah, to see what happens next, you know, that next part of your your new frontier. Maybe we'll come back one day and explore that. I would love it. I just can't even, I have no idea what that's going to be like. But yeah, thank you. This has been a really fun journey and uh, of, of this conversation and some some unexpected things. So thanks for making it interesting. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.